fundamentally, everyone needs to know that this won't last forever. This won't be like this forever. There will be an end. It feels long and months is a long period of time, but we won't manage and treat COVID the way we do now forever. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. No matter what happens or how bad people are feeling, it's so important to recognize that really it's not forever. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Everactive Schools. Each episode, we speak with different leaders in their fields about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jia Hu and Dr. Carla Gustafson, who are Medical Officers of Health with Alberta Health Services here in Calgary. Welcome, Dr. Gustafson and Dr. Hu. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hi, thanks for having us. So the reason why we are offering this content by podcast is so that people can do double duty and pursue their own well-being while they are listening, whether it's getting outside and doing some exercise or catching up on something that needs to happen inside if it's a cold day. And I love to ask my guests before we get into our conversation today about the habits that keep you well. It's so interesting to hear the habits that people have developed that help them to stay well. Could you share the things that help you? I think these aren't really that complicated. So they're simple things, but I think sleep is so critical for myself. But also when we think about children as part of that collective of movement behavior, so the sleep time, the sedentary time and the physical activity time, which is preferably outdoors. Mm -hmm. We can't really emphasize enough how important it is to have that quality sleep, especially for kids, but really for all people. Absolutely. How about you, Dr. Hugh? I totally agree with Dr. Gustafson around the importance of sleep. I don't know if I personally necessarily have the best habits around the pandemic, at least, but I think that the other thing that is really helpful is just a little bit of physical activity, you know, whether that's just going for a, a walk every day. You know, I think that does keep one physically healthy, but it also you know, helps with mental health and actually probably increases your uh, your work effectiveness. So uh, win all around. Exactly. Thank you for sharing. Before we start on our discussion of how teachers can be calm and what the best practices are surrounding teaching during a pandemic. Can you tell us just briefly about your current professional role today and why you've come to care about health and well-being in schools? A lot of our work is around COVID right now, but more specifically with schools, I would say that we work with schools all the time, actually, mainly with school boards or superintendents or representatives on um, wellness committees like health promoting school collaboratives that exist throughout Alberta. So we do have this interconnection and relationship with schools. Mental health and well-being has been really like a predominant topic over the last few years. But of course, we also work with schools on communicable disease, outbreaks, just normally, and things like vaccination. 
So those relationships always exist and they're built and become even stronger, I think, Mm -hmm. during COVID. On my end, what I normally work on is, well, actually communicable disease control and immunizations. And so I think, you know, again, Dr. Gustafson definitely is the expert on anything related to, you know, schools and mental health and health promotion. But certainly as the COVID thing happened to everybody, I started working quite closely with the schools around more what I call like acute management of COVID. I think we formed some really awesome relationships. Again, the relationship was there before, but now I think we're a lot closer. But I do think that once you sort of get a handle on how do you manage a case at your school, how do you deal with an outbreak, et cetera, et cetera, the harms actually from COVID in the school setting, I think, are, are going to be much higher actually from mental health related issues, whether amongst students or staff. So I think this podcast and the overall message is extremely timely and critical. Thank you. So you both of you are drawing on a lot of different fields and expertise. You're both medical doctors, correct as well? Okay, so you bring that expertise in addition to the public health lens. And you said the communicable diseases as usually your profile, Dr. Hugh. So I'm so grateful that we have the opportunity to talk to you today about really the most significant threat to our collective health, certainly that we've experienced in a long time. So how would you describe how this tiny microscopic virus has impacted school communities as you see the bigger picture right now? So obviously there's been some changes to learning. Moving to online learning in the past year had been a substantial shift and change that comes with its own issues. But I think actually what Dr. Hughes is alluding to is that maybe the fear around COVID or the fear of the threat of COVID might be a little bit over amplified or even overemphasized in the school setting and particularly where kids generally won't have severe outcomes of having COVID. So I think in that regard, the temperature has been a little higher than it has needed to be with schools. Mm -hmm. Anything that you would add, Dr. Hugh? I think I take COVID very, very, very seriously, Mm -hmm. as we all should, right? The way things are going in Alberta and most provinces in the country When we hear a lot about these school cases, you know, it's not necessarily there's a huge amount of school transmission happening. It's more people bringing it from the community into the schools. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the overall health effects, just the health effects of COVID itself, yes, again, it can cause serious illness in anybody, including children. But by and large, the vast, vast, vast majority of kids are able to get over it quite well without any overly ill effects. I do think some of the mental health ramifications are going to be a lot worse. I mean, there's a great deal of anxiety amongst students and teachers and principals and everybody in the school system. And that is a real deleterious effect on well-being. I do not at all want to sound patronizing, but with something like a pandemic that's certainly killed a lot of people, predominantly people who are a bit more old, like there's a lot of fear. And I think that sometimes the level of anxiety is not necessarily matched to the actual risk there. You know, even looking at Alberta, right, we can see that the it would appear that the number of excess deaths that occurred during the first wave of the pandemic, most of those were not from COVID itself. It was from people having exacerbations of mental health issues and therefore maybe overdosing on something. Or we saw a huge spike in alcoholism presentations, the emergency departments. And those are sort of consequences of our response to COVID, mm-hmm. like lockdown, social isolation, and those sorts of things, right? And 
I think addressing those issues is super, super important. Dealing with some of the concerns parents, students, teachers, principals have also important. If you're scared, I think learning a bit more about the actual transmission dynamics, how bad it is or it isn't, is really important. So I'm glad we're talking about this today. Yeah. And we are looking at health from a comprehensive school health framework, which ties into what you were just addressing there, that health is holistic, that there are multiple dimensions and that it's not just about physical health. One of the other things that we emphasize within this framework is that health and well-being are a shared responsibility for in the school setting, all of the stakeholders, which is not just teachers and students, it includes staff, parents, and community partners that are all affecting that school environment. And I think the response that Alberta has had to COVID-19 illustrates well how all those stakeholders work together. I wonder if you could speak to how the different parts of the school community are currently working to reduce the spread of COVID-19 in Alberta. I think at this point, the schools are doing so much, and I'm really glad for that, right? So people working within public health, whether they're in Alberta or Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver or really any Canadian jurisdiction with a lot of cases, they're a little bit overwhelmed, right? It's unfortunate that they're overwhelmed, but yeah, you know, when you go from 100 cases a day to 1,000 cases a day in a four-week period, it's hard to scale up that quickly for any organization. From the very beginning, actually, it's, this goes back to March and April, right around when schools actually closed, we started working with the schools to help prepare and get them ready for COVID. Because at the end of the day, like Carla, myself, we're two people, we're doctors, we know a little bit about stuff, but the effective response at a school level comes down to people like teachers and principals and all those thousands of people knowing sort of what to do, right? So we worked with them to sort of prepare what do you do if you have a case and how can we try to cohort these students better so that the cohort thing is pretty important to limit spread and how do we have the right cleaning protocols in place? We tried to do as much of that preparation sort of in advance of reopening as possible. The other group that I think that was brought in was primary care, uh, family doctors, and they formed a relationship with the schools because I think oftentimes you go to your family doctor for medical advice and it's an amazing partnership actually between public health the schools and primary care. Now, as the number of cases really are extremely high, the schools have started, oftentimes they find out about a case earlier than public health does, and they're able to take some preemptive action just around the COVID management itself. Really for society to succeed, right? Like, yes, you can think of people working in public health as the people sort of most directly responsible, maybe the people with like the technical expertise, but it really does require like a societal effort frankly, because everyone gets affected, whether your schools, businesses, churches, whatever. And the schools have been amazing, actually, at putting their all into helping address COVID and keeping their students and staff safe. Yeah, it is kind of an all hands on deck moment right now. If I can share an example, my high school son right now is in self-isolation and he received an email from the school notifying us that someone had been in his class that had tested positive, but we haven't yet heard from Alberta Health what the official dates were. So we've got the school communicating. Eventually we'll have public health communicating. I was able to have him stay home. So my role as a parent stakeholder was, okay, because I can stay home with you, let's just err on the safe side until we know more. His teacher in the meanwhile is posting things online so that he can keep track of his courses in the meantime. There's 
caretakers of the school that are sanitizing the classroom where the contagious student was. There's all these different players that are working towards overcoming this problem as best we can. In learning about the comprehensive school health framework, COVID can be like such a good example because think about the policies and procedures that are put in place at the provincial level and the school board level. But then as you say, Elizabeth, everyone is a partner in the learning and keeping each other healthy. It doesn't fall just on one person. So the school and the school staff have such a strong supporting role with students. The parents, like you're saying, have such a key role to like help keep kids home, actually help enrich or facilitate their learning a lot of the times. And then we have all these other partner organizations. So we have us at Alberta Health Services and our like inspectors and nurses that can work with schools. But you also have community organizations and partners, which are often key players in a, a comprehensive school health approach. And Dr. Who was talking about primary care, but we also have some services set up through primary care for financial assistance or food assistance for families that might have to isolate. So you're right. It's just a total all hands on deck and a lot of people actually working together to make things as best as they can be for everyone. Yes. Do you feel like the COVID experience will help us collectively prioritize health and well-being more moving forward? Has this taught us some important lessons about public health, do you think? So I would say yes, absolutely. We in public health don't look at all things COVID as a negative. Certainly, it's been an opportunity in so many ways for the general public and all of society to see some of the issues at play and certainly makes people more aware of what public health is and what public health does. There's also been certain things like financial strain or financial impacts to families and businesses that have been brought to light and people can really see how social determinants of health affect people and different population groups differently. There's been a lot of light kind of shone on some issues that are harder for people to see normally, but COVID has provided that lens to see some of those maybe financial issues or maybe emphasize the importance of mental health, mental wellness, or like social support networks, because we have a very concrete example of how those are so important for people's health. It's really made it visible how comprehensive all of our well-being is, absolutely. But I'd love to dig a little more into that idea about social determinants of health, which are the economic factors that influence our health, whether it's where we live or the kind of jobs that we have access to. How has the COVID pandemic shown us how real those social determinants of health can be? Can you explain how and why the virus is hitting some populations harder in Canada? For a long time, we've known that the social determinants, aka the non-health determinants of health, affect health a lot more than health itself. So basically, we often think that having access to a hospital or a good doctor are really important for health, and, and certainly they are. But broadly speaking, maybe only a quarter of our overall health is predicted by how good our health system is. And the other three quarters actually are predicted by, you know, how much money we make or how well educated we are or how good our social networks basically are. If you live in a house that's a decent, non-crowded house and all those things. So this is something that sort of, I think, public health and people who work in comprehensive school health know quite well. It's quite an alien concept to a lot of people in the general public, <laughs> as well as a lot of people actually in healthcare for that matter. 
COVID is very interesting because it accelerates that. So somebody who doesn't have much money, they'll buy a lot of junk food maybe because it's actually cheaper than buying fresh fruits and vegetables. And, you know, maybe they can't control their diabetes as well. So 20 years down the road, they have their leg amputated, right? There's many, many, many examples of that happening. Now with COVID, which is very, very interesting, you see that process, which often takes years happening within weeks or days, right? So with COVID, we ask a lot of people to isolate, right? I'll back off a little bit. I'll give you an example very directly, right? So if you live in a crowded house with a lot of other family members and one of those people has COVID positive, it's very hard to not have the other people in your household get COVID. Whereas if you live in a mansion and it's just you and one other person, you can easily isolate from that person. And that sort of just shows one example of how a non-health determinant, aka your housing, affects if you get COVID or not. One of the maybe starkest examples of this actually was with the big Cargill outbreak. That was a, an outbreak that happened in a meat plant in High River. It remains the largest outbreak actually in North America to this day. What we had there were, you know, most of those workers are newcomers, refugees, temporary foreign workers. And so they don't speak English as the first language, right? And so even with that, all of our messaging around COVID, that's usually in English, doesn't work so well, Right. And then they work in an extremely crowd, like a meat plant is shoulder to shoulder for eight hours a day for your entire shift, which is the only place in the world where I think that actually happens still. Very easy to sort of transmit the infection in that setting. And then they go home and they live in crowded housing, right? And all that makes a perfect storm where people can get COVID more easily. And then public health, like us, we legally mandate people to, to isolate if they're a case or quarantine if, you know, they're a contact of a case. But if, you know, you're making... 15 bucks an hour and your wife makes 15 bucks an hour and works at a long-term care and you've got like four kids or something like that and you need to feed your kids, will you isolate? Like I would say maybe not and I wouldn't blame you for that. And then that's how it spread even further. And those are just some examples. (laughs) I'm just going to give you an example of where the schools really jumped in. With that whole Cargill thing, we identified that the single biggest need of households on isolation or quarantine was food, right? And so we approached the Foothills School Division, which is the, that's in High River Okotoks, and their school gave $50,000 to the food bank to help feed some of these families. Same thing happened with Calgary Board of Education as well. And the schools providing some of these social determinants for people who are suffering during pandemic. And that type of integration, collaboration was amazing because in doing that, not only did they help feed people, which is by itself super important, but they fundamentally limited the spread of COVID into the broader community because it enabled, empowered people to actually follow our mandates from public health. Those are all great examples of how where you work and where you live have a lot to do with your well-being. Anything that you'd wanted to add, Dr. Gustafson? There's Definitely lots of examples in Calgary, but also, again, probably across Canada and teachers will be well aware and have a lot of knowledge about this. But in lots of neighborhoods, schools, we know, are kind of a safe space for kids. So even when you're talking about sort of your high school son being home from school, which might be good for your son, but there are situations, of course, when having a kid be at home for two weeks instead of in school, which is their safe space, is actually more detrimental to their health or more traumatic for them if there are like negative factors or influences in the homes. It is really important for 
teachers and learners to understand what a central role the school plays and how that might actually be a reprieve or a safe space for a lot of kids in a lot of neighborhoods and stopping their access to the school and the positive influences that are there can be detrimental. So like another unintended consequence or how COVID can sort of highlight populations or areas where it's certainly harder. Absolutely. That's a good point. Another defining understanding in the comprehensive school framework, and we've talked about this a little bit, is the idea that we're comprehensive, holistic beings and that we have multiple dimensions of health. So while the nature of the coronavirus in a strict sense is physical, the effects, as we've talked about, have had numerous ramifications for our social, mental, emotional, and other dimensions of our health. Can you speak a little bit to the impact the pandemic could be having on students and teachers' comprehensive health and well-being right now? The short answer for the impact of COVID is really that we don't know. There could be positive impacts, there could be negative impacts on mental health, but generally the literature supports that people have a high degree of resilience if they experience short-term emergencies or natural disasters. So we would expect really the majority of people and children to have that high degree of resilience and to come out of COVID sort of on the other side, not necessarily worse off, but could even be better off. So there are some negatives with COVID that we know when we think about health holistically around maybe decreased physical activity or social isolation. And certainly for kids, and this will probably resonate (laughs) with all the learners, is increased screen time that kids might have experienced even through their online learning, but just at home while parents are trying to sort of cope with day-to-day life. And then for younger children, just knowing developmentally how important facial cues or facial expressions are for their social development, we don't really know what the impacts of that will be kind of like with masking and less interaction potentially. But certainly there has been a lot of positives, like maybe more family interaction, more trying of new activities together, like you've probably all heard about baking or crafting and sometimes connection to nature. So it is really this balance and don't know what it will look like afterwards. I really appreciate how you talked about the positives in addition to the negatives, because I think it's often in the news that we read about all the negatives. And it is scary to wonder how this will affect future generations and our own kids um, and our students that we care about, of course. But this idea that, you know, there could be some resilience that happens from this and that it has given us all time to pause and slow down and time to spend more time with each other in nature, which may or may not be a good thing depending on the family situation but i appreciate that it's it's very complicated and complex how this has impacted us and what about the teachers who are worried for their own health you mentioned that students generally fare fairly well if they contract covid but what about teachers who are older what advice would you give to those who are handling working in these exceptional conditions and you are both in the medical field you went into that work expecting possibilities of being exposed to illness and this is something new for teachers so how would you talk to someone who's feeling a little anxious about that in general my message would be something along the lines of this Again, there's not a whole lot of in-school transmission that we see. So if you think that by coming to school, you're putting yourself at significantly elevated risk, that's not entirely true. 
you read the reports, all these school outbreaks, an outbreak is one case, and we don't actually see a huge amount of transmission. And actually where we see the most transmission is again in the community, right? So when people get together and have larger social gatherings and those sorts of things. Now, this is what I mean by the risk, the perception of the risk and the anxiety does not actually match the risk. And for example, I would say that if you ever go to other people's homes and have dinner with them, that's in some way probably riskier than going to school most of the time. And so just framing the risk along those dimensions is really important to do. And certainly, I think based on what people are reading in the news, it certainly sounds really, really, really dangerous in schools, but it's not really. Now, if you're somebody who's very old, I don't want to get too granular or have some major immunocompromising conditions, but I think that's worth having a chat, right? The school boards have their own policies around these things, but for sure, there's quite an exponential increase in severity after the age of 65. And I don't know how many people are working in schools over that age, but this is another thing that we sort of had a lot of chats with the school boards and the superintendents about, which is what actually does put you at risk and what might we do about that. Absolutely. Anything that you'd wanted to add, Dr. Gustafson? Yeah, so luckily, I think like Dr. Hughes saying, most of the workforce, whether it's teachers or other sectors, is sort of under that age of 65. Not to say that, of course, there isn't people over the age of 65 working, but most of the people working are in that younger category. So that's really great news, actually. You know, coronavirus would look a lot different if it was affecting young people versus older So there's always those dynamics to think of. But also, again, I think what's so important is that in schools and the school boards and the schools and all the people involved have done such a great job at implementing protocols and creating sort of more structure to the environment. And because of all that structure, we do think schools are generally safe when the protocols are followed. And actually, as Dr. Hugh was saying, people's risk outside of that structured environment, so when they're in more in the community or the home setting, is actually kind of where the most risk is and not in the school itself, because there are all those protocols and measures put in place. The cases that we see in schools, they seem scary, but it's actually just mostly a reflection of what we're seeing in the community broadly. And it's not a direct effect of what any one person in the school has done. Yes, and I would affirm that. So I have three school-aged children in three different schools. And in my daughter's school, there was one case and no spread within the school. It was brought from outside the community. And then from my son's case, he had in his class, he was exposed and had to stay home in self-isolation, but there was no further spread from that. And it came from outside the school. It did not happen within the class because we were wearing masks and sanitizing and following the protocol. It stopped with that one case. Likewise with my son, he's now on his second self-isolation. <laughs> but I'm confident that it will be similar to the last time he took tests and did not have it. And again, the school confirmed that there was no spread within the school, that it was coming from the community, and that the protocol was just making sure that it didn't spread further. But the policies that are in place, the mask wearing and the sanitizing, are keeping students safe in school right now. On the mental health side of things, like it's so important for the staff, teachers, and student teachers to remember that even COVID aside, 
and the children kind of feed off the energy actions and cues that are modeled to them by those kind of important role models and important figures such as teachers. So teachers can create and perpetuate the calm actually and the reassurance that kids need to feel more secure in a time of uncertainty. And that was my next question was how can we as teachers find the right balance of keeping the students safe, but also not making them feel stressed, making sure that they're following those policies and protocol, but not singling out and shaming students if they forget or their mask slips or things like that. What are the strategies that you would recommend to a teacher to find that right balance of safety, but not fear? Right. So there's the teacher role modeling and the teacher feelings that are really important, but there's also really good lessons in COVID around inclusivity and acceptance that we really like those kind of ideas in schools generally, right? So if there's kids with certain disabilities or impairments that maybe they can't wear a mask, it is a really great lesson to say that person or that child shouldn't be single out or ostracized. They should still be included and accepted as part of our school or classroom community, even if maybe they can't wear a mask and they're not necessarily posing that much of a higher risk. There's also kind of the idea around people who get COVID and not blaming and shaming those people or treating them differently because as we talked about earlier, COVID feeds off some of those social risk factors that often aren't in the control of those children that live in those conditions. So it's important not to blame them for getting COVID. Anyone can get COVID. It's not the fault of that person. And also when people have had COVID and they're recovered and they maybe come back to class, welcoming them, keeping them included, they're not a risk to anyone anymore. There's no reason to stigmatize anyone that either got COVID or recovered or maybe can't follow all policies and recommendations exactly as outlined. Yeah. And I do think that the self-isolation for the entire cohort actually helps with that stigmatizing because everybody's away. (laughs) It's not obvious that one person is gone and then they come back. Sort of everyone's going through this experience together. I think that actually helps with the social inclusion when they come back. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great point. Because if we just pulled out the one child or one staff member, it becomes a little bit more obvious who it was. And it also creates challenges, I think, for schools and teachers and the student teachers will appreciate this too, that if you're missing like six of your kids from your class, it's really hard to set up something special for six kids and then still go to class and teach the remaining children in the classroom. So that's the other reason for like thinking of the classroom as a unit that's somewhat helpful. That makes sense that it's easier for the teacher instead of essentially teaching in two modalities to sort of, we're all doing this. (laughs) Exactly. The other thing though, that mean Carl and I have talked about a lot is around the importance Mm -hmm. of actually keeping kids in the classroom versus the virtual, because the virtual isn't necessarily super well set up anywhere in the country. Yeah. What do you wish teachers knew about how to talk about the virus and what would be the key messages that you would have for someone in that position? So all along through this discussion, we've really been emphasizing that COVID is not more important than everything else. It is important to respect COVID and respect the policies and procedures around it to keep everyone safe and healthy. But COVID isn't more important than every other aspect of your health or your life. 
So it is important to keep those other things going. Like, for example, what we've just talked about it, it is really important for kids to be in school. We know that we don't want kids out of the classroom forever or for very long periods of time. So we need to prioritize that as a society. And and we need to let kids know that we want them at school and it's important for them to be there and to make that a safe space. The other message, and I think is super key for teachers, again, is not really COVID specific, but can be thought of more generally, is just how important it is to use accurate information sources, especially in this time in our world, where there's a lot of reliance on internet or like very specific information from non-credible sources that cannot be overemphasized to children or teachers that matter and to really be mindful about the sources and the information they're accessing and also media biases and and the the preference of media to sensationalize or have more scary or intense messages to attract attention than maybe reflects like reality of the situation. Yeah, sometimes I need to take a break from the alarmist COVID coverage because it does seem like it's really just trying to get your attention every single time. And sometimes what you need is just information, Mm -hmm. not to be scared. (laughs) I'm wondering if we can end on a hopeful note. Could you please give us your reasons why you think we will make it through this crisis and what's giving you optimism right now during the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. And I focus kind of in this area of health promotion where comprehensive school health sits. So I am always thinking of a strength-based approach or uh, holistic, like how can we build on the positives? And I think fundamentally, everyone needs to know that this won't last forever. This won't be like this forever. There will be an end. It feels long and months is a long period of time, but we won't manage and treat COVID the way we do now forever. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. And you know what, COVID might not be gone or eradicated in terms like medical terms, like virus might not be gone. But if it does persist, we will definitely be treating it differently in the future. It might be more like how we think of influenza and how we act on influenza no matter what happens or how bad people are feeling it's so important to recognize that really it's not forever that is helpful anything that you would add dr hugh i'm gonna just connect off what uh carla dr gustins was saying there was a wonderful press release yesterday about a vaccine trial result that showed 90 percent effectiveness and you know i haven't seen the paper yet like that really, I mean, everybody's waiting on that. And I don't think any of us thought we'd have anything 90% ineffective. And if that proves to be the case, that can end COVID for sure. Right. And I, I basically yeah. cried when that came out, like, honestly. <laughs> so partly is like, it won't last forever. And that vaccine trial and the others that will come will help, will, will, will further enable that. But back to the whole, I guess, the original conception of comprehensive school health, The partnerships that have been formed within the health system and outside cross-sectorally, whether with the schools, with primary care, with many, many groups of society, they're formed during a time of great adversity and emergency and pandemic. But these relationships, they're going to stick, I'm sure of that. And then after that, we're going to be just so much better at actually working together to solve problems around health and education and everything else. I mean, that to me really is the best silver lining of COVID is that we all made a bunch of friends and we're all going to work together better. 
Absolutely. It has taught us many lessons on how to work together. Thank you so much to both of you for taking the time to come and talk with us about this important topic. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise, your medical background, and your role with Alberta Health Services make you the perfect guest for this topic. Thank you so much for having us on this podcast. And this is really fun and I hope it's really useful Again, we can't underscore enough the important role that teachers and the education system play in our society, but also in terms of health. It's really great to have these connections and partnerships. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and EverActive Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until the next time, the podcast is dismissed.